Blog Talk Radio. of a life lived in terms of usefulness and integrity 
rather than a life based solely on accomplishment or possessions. This is T. Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a reconnective healing practitioner and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. Energy Awareness Radio is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products to choose from, so you can listen whenever and wherever you want. Just download the title you prefer free of charge and start listening when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. My guest, in my opinion and the opinion of many others, is a woman of great wisdom. Toinette Lippi was born in London and had a long and distinguished career at Alfred A. Knopf. In 1989, she founded Bell Tower, where she published 70 books that nourished the soul, illuminated the mind, and spoke directly to the heart. Her second book, Caught in the Act, Reflections on Being, Knowing, and Doing, was published in 2004. After 50 years in publishing, Toinette abandoned editorial work, and she devotes herself to East Asian brush painting, which she taught at the Educational Alliance for four years and currently teaches on the Upper West Side of New York City. Hello, Toinette. Thank you so much for joining us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? I am being fine. Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to start with how you came to write your book. What was the catalyst for this? Uh, Well, it's a very strange and unusual story. Uh, I was having dinner one evening um, in the summer of uh, 2000 and with uh, another publisher at Penguin Putnam. The imprint was J.P. Tarcher, and we had known one another a long time. And I told him that I was planning to quit my job at Knopf after 30-odd years. Um on the day that my son started work, because I felt that I had paid all my dues to society and that I had spent my whole life working and I had no idea how to play and I wanted to learn before it was too late. And he listened to this and he said, how wonderful. He said, I want you to write a book for me. So I said, what are you talking about? He said, I want you to write a book called Nothing Left Over. I said, what would it be? And he said, it would be a book, a gift book about the simple life. He said, you're the most qualified person I know to do this. So I said, Joel, everybody has already written, so many people have written about the simple life. The world does not need another book about the simple life. And he replied, Well, yes, there are a lot of books, he said, but those people just write about it and you actually live it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, when you want to make yourself a cup of tea, you boil just one cup of water, don't you? I said, yes, of course. Otherwise, I'd be wasting water, money, energy, and time. So he laughed. And and he said, well, I'm really serious about the book. I said, well, I don't know that I can write a book. So he said, well, I said, I need to think about it. He said, well, I want to buy it tonight at dinner. (laughs) So I said, well, you don't need me to write a proposal? He said, not unless you want to. And I said, well, we all know, since we've been publishing, that a book proposal is far more difficult to write than a whole book. 
So I'm glad that you don't, you know, you don't want me to do that. But I do need to think about whether I have enough to say. I have no idea. You know, I, I'm going to go home and think about it. And he said, but but how much money do you want? You know, I, I just want to buy it tonight. And I said, it's not about money. It's about whether I have enough to say. Anyway, I came home and uh, I looked through all those little notes that you keep over the years and never look at again. And I decided that perhaps I had enough to say. And so I got in touch with him and said, okay, I'll do it. That's a very long story, but it's a very unusual story. Well, and how long did it actually take you to write the book? Because he didn't well, give you much time. <laughs> it was, um, uh, I asked for a year to do it, um, and I delivered within the year. Um, and, it, you know, it just went on from there. Um, and I, everybody had told me that in order to write a book, you had to sit down and decide on your chapter titles and um, always at the same time every day you had to work for X number of hours. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do that because I've spent all my life being disciplined and I want to learn to play. So I'm not going to dragoon myself like that. So I recommend this to anybody who wants to write a book. I just decided to do it this way. Nobody had told me. I opened a document in Word, and I started to type whatever was in my head whenever I felt like doing it. And I kept this one document, and from every morning I would, or whenever I sat down, I would read everything in the document. And and eventually, I would see there were themes developing. So I'd pull those paragraphs out and put them in a new document, and give it a name. Those ended up being the chapter titles. And at the end, you know, there was nothing left over. <laughs> I had used all all the words. But it was a perfect title, and he gave that to you. He I mean, gave he, me the title. I would never yeah. have dumped that up. He he. I didn't realize he had sized me up quite so well. <laughs> he did. <laughs> you know, because most people, I think, they don't come up with the title first, or the title changes you know, because of what, for whatever reason, it is, doesn't end up being. Some people think they're going to write a book about a given thing, and then all of a sudden it's something else. I've had a lot of uh, authors tell me that. Well, I started to write this, and then lo and behold, it became something else, and we rechanged the, you know, the whole, the whole scheme and the, the title changed and everything. So he gave you a directive, and you went with it. And I have to mm-hmm. say, you know, sometimes we do think the world doesn't need another whatever, but when it's genuine and from your heart, which your book is, that's what makes the difference, you know? Yes, I, I, I agree with you. And that's why your book is, is the way that it is, because it is, you know, like he said, you lived it, so it is a totally different read than a self-help book that just kind of tells you what you should do. You know, it's almost like do what I say but not as I do, where yours is an actual practice, an everyday thing that, that you really do prescribe to. And and you know, when I was working with an editor on this, you know, um, and at one point I said, I, I don't know that I have anything more to say. And he said, well, it, it will come, he said, because you write with the pen of your life. And I thought that was a lovely way of putting it. It is. It's a beautiful way of putting it. And he's absolutely right because that comes through to the reader, you know. As you're reading the book, you realize that this is, it isn't something that you're just saying. You're actually doing and being and knowing 
and which is uh, wonderful because we, I think we can learn from that a whole lot better than just someone who offers advice without actually having gone through something. Uh, and the um, the chapter titles ended up being um, the principles that I live by, although most people don't realize that because um, I think it's a big secret. Certainly it was um, a big secret to me. I didn't realize it until after the book was published that most people don't look at the chapter titles. It, you know, they just don't. They start at the beginning of the chapter, but they don't bother with the name. Ah, okay. And somebody okay. asked me once, you know, well, you know, what are the principles by which you live? And I said, well, it's all on the table of contents on the first page. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't you noticed? <laughs> no. You can just look it right up on page whatever it is, three or That's four. That's all you need, just to read the there. table of contents. <laughs> well, and, it, they, and they are wonderful principles as well that you have, and some of them, uh, you know, really resonate differently just in in the way that, um, I mean, I took notes throughout the book, and one of the things that I noticed is I am often saying to people, just do it. And I think I was the original Nike girl. And, you know, just do it, just do it, let's get it done. Don't talk about it, don't obsess, just do it. It's it's constant, and people know that about me. I get comments like, "I, I didn't know you meant now, or weren't we just talking about it? I didn't think we were moving forward with it, were we? And I just say, yes, yes, talked, moved forward, completed, checked. And you have one of your life rules or principles that's very similar, similar, do it now. And for me, I just do it because it gives me a sense of accomplishment and I don't see the need to waste brain cells in long discussions about something when we know the answer is going to be let's just move forward and do it. Why do you feel it's a good idea to just do it now? Because if you don't do it now, it's a great, it becomes a great weight. It sort of hangs there waiting for you to do it. You've acknowledge to yourself that this is necessary, this is what you need to do, but maybe I'll do it tomorrow, or first I'm going to do, take the dog for a walk, or whatever, any excuse not to do it now. And the the longer you put it off, the more more difficult it is to do it, and um, the more it drags you down in some way, don't you think? I absolutely. Yeah, I think people procrastinate a lot because they don't want to do things for either maybe it's fear, maybe it's laziness sometimes, maybe it's, you know, oh, well, I just don't feel like it right now. I'm not sure it's going to work. It's it's Maybe it's a confidence thing. I don't know, but I, I agree with you. If, you. if you don't do it now, when will you do it? And why well, continue to belabor it? There's one caveat I have, which is um, I always try to do something now, but there are moments that... I, I'm ready to do it, but I'm not sure how to proceed. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, um, it's like when, when most people say how difficult it is to make a decision if they have choices. And I've never understood that because the, the way I see it is if, if I know what needs to be done, I do it now. And if I don't know what needs to be done exactly... I wait until the world turns and mm-hmm. it becomes clear, and then I do it. But that's a smart way of working. That's working smart, not hard. <laughs> yes. Really, because a lot of people will just, without the clarity, 
they'll move forward in a direction that is clearly a detour, only to find it takes a long time to get back on track, and then the clarity is there. Whereas if you wait for the clarity, you can be doing other things, you know, in preparation or, or doing something totally different without having that angst and stress of, of trying and, and, and not getting to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. So I think there are times you do have to sit back and wait. I mean, it did take me quite some time to realize that I couldn't do everything now um, and that the reason was it wasn't the right moment to do it. Mm-hmm. And then and once you've patient. accepted that, it, it, it becomes clear when the moment is to do it. And that's wonderful patience. I have a friend who's always telling me you have to be patient. <laughs> sometimes I am, but sometimes I'm not. <laughs> Tell it to give you patience for Christmas. <laughs> I named my cat Patience because I thought that would help. It didn't. <laughs> it maybe helped the cat. Yeah, it probably did. <laughs> didn't help me. I thought, well, this is the only way I'm going to get patience here. Your name is now Patience. There you go. <laughs> now, sometimes actually probably many times, something is right in front of you, but you don't necessarily see it. You you know that expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. Yet, that which we may not see is what we need to see to learn and grow. So do we not see it because, what do you think? Do we not see it because we are not ready to see it, or is it in a sense avoidance on a subconscious level that translates to the conscious mind so that we just, won't see it? it I, I suspect it's not the same um, for everybody and uh, not the same even f- for us um, on more than one occasion. It could be that it's not the right moment. It could be that you're focused on something else and you don't, you know, when we're focused on something else, we don't see what's right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're looking off into the deep blue yonder or whatever. Um, but I I suspect it's not always the same thing for each person that that causes this. Is this I your experience? I think one of the things that in your book was when you talked about um, people being overwhelmed sometimes. For instance, if you walk into a room and there's a lot of clutter, and one thing you know, is right there in front of you. That's the thing you need to deal with first. Yes, 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 absolutely. I mean, when it's time to clean the house, you can't clean it all at the same time. You have to start somewhere. So you start with what's right in front of your nose. And the one thing that you saw that was bothering you the most probably. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it is in life. Yes, indeed. You have to deal with the one thing. Sometimes it's difficult to figure out what that one thing is. Sometimes people don't see that. I think it's um, what you were talking about before, patience. (laughs) True. (laughs) You just have to hang in there until it's clear. And then when it's obvious, then then you have the energy to do something about it. If it's not clear, um, you're probably not going to do it well. So you have to keep waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not for you, but but I think that's hard for a lot of people because, you know, for instance, if if someone starts a business 
and it doesn't do well in three or four years, people would say, you need to stop and go find something else to do because this clearly isn't working for you. But the person is passionate about it. Then they stop, and they go and do something else, and five other people come along and do the exact same thing, and they're successful. And that's hard for, for, for people to grasp, that I'm doing something, and it's not working for me, and somebody else comes along and, and does the same thing, and it works for them, whether it's running a business or doing some kind of, a, you know, um, some type of work that you really thought you could accomplish something with, and someone takes the idea that you have. They don't take the idea, but they have the same idea, and they run with it, and it works for them. It's, um, you know, it's kind of like the, the gentleman that owned land, and he was drilling for oil and drilling for oil and drilling for oil, and he couldn't find it, and he said, forget it, I'm done. How long are you supposed to do this? He sold the property, and then the people that bought it came in, and three feet into digging, they struck oil. So is it because you just need to continue to be patient, or is it sometimes really not your purpose to do whatever it is you think it is to do? Well, I, I don't think one can make a judgment. Um, I mean, you could wait forever and and not actually see what needs to be done. Mm. But I think at a certain point, you have to move on. Um I mean, whether it's a business or or digging for oil, right? You, you know, there's there's a certain amount of time and energy that you can put into it, and um, if it doesn't work out for you, that's the way it is. I don't know. I haven't actually experienced that myself, so I feel inadequate to speak about it. Ah, okay. I just thought it was a kind of a like, like a, a theory thing that you know. Well, you know, people. I hear people all the time saying, "Just keep going, just keep going," and they're egging on whoever the person is and cheering them on. But you can only cheer them on to a certain degree because if they're not in it wholeheartedly, that's when I think they need to say, "You know what? It doesn't matter how much sharing you're doing. If I'm not in it wholeheartedly, I need to get out," mm-hmm. instead of just forcing them. I see parents do that with children a lot in sports. Well, I think parents want for their children what they perhaps didn't have for themselves, mm-hmm. and um, but that may not be what the child wants. Exactly. So that makes it hard for you know, and then they for learn both things. of them for the parents yeah. and for the child. Yes. Yeah, it makes it very difficult. Now you have another that principle that that you live and work by: do and say nothing unnecessary. That is a great principle. How? Was that just inherent in you, or did you learn that principle through trial and error and just, you know, figure, okay, I'm I'm done with saying things unnecessary, I'm just going to move forward? Um, I learned it um, in, um, in a philosophy class that I took in London before I came to this country in 1964, um, and it has stood me in good stead. Um ever since, and that's 51 years. Um, I did not discover it for myself, but I recognized it and espoused it because it seemed suddenly so obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I didn't dream it up. I cannot claim that. Well, no, but I, I knew that you, I knew you didn't dream it up, but I knew that it was something that you, that you live by, which is great because there's an awful lot of support superfluous talk, for instance, when you're trying to get something done and people just want to talk something to death instead of taking action and do it now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it goes back to that. <laughs> yes. 
nice little segue. <laughs> How could someone, I mean, was it easy for you to incorporate that into your everyday life, to make it a practice? I mean, I know it's all about awareness and you have to be aware, and but to become a habit, was it something that you easily were able to do? Yes. Um, well, you have to understand, well, you do understand this, I think, because you've, you've read my book, but... Um, I was brought up by a Victorian nanny in England um, who was the daughter of a Royal Marine. And she was very strict about what we could and couldn't do, my brother and I. She was hired to take care of my brother, my younger brother. Um, and and so, you know, I, I was not allowed to um, move away from the straight and narrow. So I, I became very disciplined for the rest of my life and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to break out at at 62 and and try to live my life um in the moment and not do it because someone had told me whatever the it was but I wanted to see whether I could simply respond to what was necessary in the moment but after you know a lifetime of doing it the other way, it it was hard. But I think now it, it's a lot easier because um, I've been practicing for these last fifteen years. I also think you got great great ability to remain disciplined through what you went through being brought up by that nanny. Yes, yes, I think so. I think yeah. so. I'm grateful to her. Yes. Yes, and isn't that the, uh, sometimes it's the, the difficult things that we're most grateful for because we learn from them, and, you know, maybe you didn't want to be disciplined at the time, but it it surely did work out well for you down the road. And I also, you know, spent years at um, an English boarding school mm-hmm. where, again, we, we didn't have much choice about what we were doing. Um, so I learned, to, as you said, just do it, Um Long before Nike. (laughs) You were the original Nike girl, and I thought it was me. (laughs) We can be twins there. It's all right. There you go. (laughs) Neither of us are going to be paid. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And that's okay. Sometimes it's just better to get things done. You know, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is a a, a high-tech age, and with that comes... Uh, the loss, yes, I think I will use that word, the loss of awareness to the point where there's no connection even in face-to-face conversations anymore. People are constantly changing, you know, the way they do things. They're checking their phones, they're texting, they're posting something to some social media site while the person or the people that they're supposed to be with, you know, are being totally ignored. And I for one, do not like that at all. I feel as though people are addicted to their gadgets. They they don't utilize their time well, and they're not building relationships with others when they're distracted by, you know, phone calls and texts and, and all of that. They're and just building a relationship to their phone. Yes, yes. Or their iPad, yes. You know, and I find it to be a little, you know, they don't realize they're being selfish and rude. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, some of the kids in my neighborhood, they will sit on the curb, three of them in a row, they're not speaking. They're all on their phones texting each other. They're sitting right next to the person, and they're texting each other on their phones. And I, I'm just amazed by that because 
it's they're losing so much about communing with another person. And I loved that you speak about giving your attention to people wholly and the importance of giving the gift of attention to others. That was a great chapter. Yes. Um, I think I began that chapter with um, the fact that my ex-husband was, was dying of AIDS. And mm-hmm. um, I had published, I don't know that I had done done everything at that point, but uh, over the years I published three books by Ramdas, And he was not my teacher per se, he was my author but and my friend and still is. Uh, and I asked him what, what I could do um for neil as he was as he was dying because it it just so happened that here i was in my late 30s and um i had never been present with a dying person all of my loved ones that had died had done so off stage and he said to me um just give him your full attention and if you are able um coordinate your breathing with his mm-hmm. breathe just the way he is breathing and just be there with and for him which I, I tried to do and um, it's been wonderful advice ever since whether as I say to people whether the person in front of you is dying or living mm-hmm. it's still the same to to be present to them that's and so very them. true. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, I work a lot of hospice, and I know that it's funny that you talked about uh, breathing and coordinating it with the people because sometimes in the room there's there are family members, and they're of course very stressed out and anxious and you know upset, and then I come in, <laughs> and I will be talking to the the patient, and you do automatically your breath goes to their breath because you're talking one-on-one with them, and it's almost like there's no one else in the room. And very frank conversations go on, and the things that they ask questions about, I'll offer information on as best I can. And these are things that the other people in the room don't want to talk about. They don't want to, you know, go beyond the today, because this is their loved one. It's very difficult for them. But when you coordinate your breath, and I never thought of it that way, except I know I do it. I know that you do go into that rhythm. And you do that in every conversation that you have with people when you're really speaking and listening to them. Because when you're on the phone with someone and they're saying, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm mm-hmm, you know they're checking a text or an email they're doing something else. They're not paying attention to what I'm saying, you know. And I could say anything. I could tell a joke. I could start to sing. They would not know. And I've done things like that. I've said outrageous things and said, don't you agree? And they've said, absolutely. And I thought, really, do you want to know what I just said? Because you are not paying attention. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> it is a I, gift, though. I, I have to say that I have a trick that, that I do, which is that if I'm talking with somebody, and in my case, it's not going to be someone who's, doing that with a smartphone or anything like that because luckily I mean many of my friends are like me they have stupid phones that's what um, I have you have a stupid phone too okay. yeah I don't want a, I don't want a magic phone right so um and I keep mine turned off it's really mm-hmm. only for an emergency or something like that but if I'm talking with someone and I realize suddenly that they're not listening to me 
they're thinking of something else. Uh, I have been known to simply stop in the middle of a sentence and see if they notice that I'm not speaking anymore. I haven't done it in a long time, but I used to do this. Um, because when the person you know, comes back into the present moment, they're not certain exactly you whether you finished your <laughs> sentence or not. I like but that I don't want one. to waste my breath, one. you know, if they're not going if they're not willing to listen. <laughs> I'm going to take that one. <laughs> I like that a lot. Just stop. It's funny because I will say to people, it's always okay to say no. And it's always okay to just stop so that you can think and filter, you know, use your filter before you actually speak the words because you can't retract the words, you know. You can't unring the bell, so try to use the filter as best you can. And it slows you down and it makes you think so that you're not just saying something. I've had people say, I didn't know I volunteered for this. And I'll say, oh, yeah, you sat there and you raised your hand with everybody else. Yeah, but I didn't know what you were talking about. Oh, well, <laughs> whose fault is that? <laughs> so I like, I like that. I like your phrase, unring the bell. That's good. Yeah, you can't unring the bell. You know, you just can't. So you have to be really careful what you're what you're saying to to people. It, uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, how you pay attention to them because people don't, oftentimes they're just totally distracted. And that's one of the things that's really wrong right now is that they're so rushed and they don't take time for themselves. And then they wonder why they're, you know, not feeling well and, and things are going wrong in life because you're not present to, to be guided by what you need to be guided by, your inner being so that you're following the path you should. If people did that, everything would be so much easier, but they don't necessarily do that. We are speaking with Toinette Lippe, author of Nothing Left Over. To learn more, please visit. And Toinette, this is the, this is the uh, website I was given. It's com. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Luckily, when I um, created the website in 2007, nobody else had chosen that name. <laughs> you never and know. The name- the name is spelled T-O-I-N-E-T-T-E-L-I-P-T-E dot com. So go ahead and write that down now so that you can check it out after the show. There's a lot of good information there. One of the other chapters that you have that, that seems to be like right in a row was Offer No Resistance. That can be quite difficult, quite difficult. How does one accomplish that? Um, well, <laughs> you have to be in the moment. Mm-hmm. I think we're um we're quite combative um particularly or maybe you say combative in the United States for so some words I never get <laughs> right um that um there's a lot of arguing that that goes on um you people often like to disagree and um I see, I, my experience is that it's not very productive. I don't know what you think. I don't think it's productive. I think sometimes people like to disagree just for the sake of debate. We see it in mm-hmm, politicians mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> and you, but you know, if you're with somebody and you know they're putting forth their argument and everything like that, you don't actually have to say anything. They may think that means you agree, but you haven't actually said that. Right. Um, 
It, it's very similar in a way to when I was taking these philosophy classes in in, in England, in London, um, and I was like 17 years old. Um, I noticed after a week or so that the tutor who was leading the group um, in the evening class um, kept saying to each person, yes, after the person had, you know, given an observation or something. Mm-hmm. And and I realized that, you know, he was saying yes to to each person, even though what they were saying was contradicting the last one. So finally I put my hand up and I said, why do you say yes to this person here and that yes to that person there um, when they're saying the opposite? And he smiled and he said, when I say yes, I mean I hear you. Just an acknowledgement. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. And, yes. and we'd all taken it that he agreed with this person, you know, but of course he was just acknowledging it. I think sometimes it's almost as though people think you're saying yes by by omission, by not by not disagreeing or standing up and saying no, I don't want that. People think, oh, okay, that you know, and you've acquiesced, and, and therefore you're saying yes. People don't realize that maybe you're just thinking it through, processing it, or you just choose not to. Because no one ever says, I'm going to abstain, <laughs> you know, other than when you're in a board of trustees right. meeting, you know. <laughs> you know. But I think that a lot of times when things come up in business meetings, sometimes I'll say, I, I don't really want to comment right now. And people will look at me and they'll think, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, and I'll think, well, I need time to process whatever it is, you know. I want to think about it. I don't think you always have to have an immediate response, but that's not the way the world works in most cases. Mm-hmm. People so basically it. what you're doing is, is what I described earlier. You're waiting yes. for the world to turn um, yes. and until suddenly it's very clear. Yes. And yes, you can you say yes to. or no. You're correct. Yeah. You have to see. Uh, there are too many factors sometimes. You know, and that, and that is a, a time when you really do have to, it's not procrastination. It's gathering enough information so that you can make an informed decision. Too many times I think people jump the gun and they don't make an informed decision because things seemingly sound, well, this sounds great. We can do this. Okay, well, let's see what the ramifications are. Did anybody think about this, this, or this? And then you're told, don't be negative. I'm not being negative. I'm just saying (laughs) you have to. there's a world out there. We have to be real. You know, there are things that you do have to uh, think through in order to not you know, find out later on that you're going to fail. I don't know. I like to plan. I believe in, you know, having a backup plan, too. So sometimes that's a good measure. I'm not thinking so much of doing research, but but in my own experience, I have to um, – I, I trust that whatever I need will come at the right moment. I, particularly recently, I've noticed that um, last thing at night – just before I drift off and first thing in the morning, one or two things will come into my mind that need to be done now, which I hadn't thought about or I didn't. I wasn't aware that I was thinking about them. Obviously, they they were in my brain, but they didn't surface. So this is the same again, like waiting until the moment that 
something becomes clear and then acting on it then. And and I've learned to trust this because it, it comes in those liminal times when you're just drifting off or just emerging. That's very sleep. true. That's very true. I find I, I, it's almost like I'm lucent dreaming when I, and I know I'm not. I know that I'm not dreaming. It's I'm having a thought or something comes to me uh, prior to going to sleep and just upon waking up as well. I, I think that that kind of goes back to the phrase, maybe if you sleep on it, you know, I'll sleep mm-hmm. on it and you'll get an right. answer. And, yes. And we do. <laughs> Sometimes yes. before we go to sleep, we start to relax and there it is. Yes. So that's a good thing. <laughs> I think, yes, you're right. It's the relaxing that does it because... When you're not relaxed, it's like um, a net that's taut over the mind, and uh-huh. it, it, and it's, it's so tight, that like mesh, that that things can't get through. And and when you're relaxed, you know anything can get through. Right, exactly. I mean, stress does that to people all the time. It's like a gerbil wheel that you're on. You can't get off. Now you're worried about it. Now you're creating more stress and raising cortisol levels, and now you're getting even more stress because of that, and you can't think. And until you get off of that gerbil wheel, you know, you're just going to be running like that and pretty much doing the same thing over and over again and not getting anywhere, which is, you know, the definition of insanity. So (laughs) it's nice to just not be stressed. And one of the ways... To not to de-stress actually is another one of your chapters. What nourishes us? I don't think people. I don't think people nourish. See, I'm looking at your book as it's a it's a great it's great to read because someone actually lives this life and you know it when you're reading it. And like someone actually lives like this. This is really cool because people should live like this. But it's also a guidebook because it can help everyone to try to implement some of these principles into their life. Nobody says you have to do it in, in a day and implement all of them, but to be able to take one or two and just be aware of it and work on it, it's a wonderful thing. And I don't think right now people think they're nourishing themselves because they will, you know, well, I don't eat anything that has GMOs in it, I'm gluten-free. I'm a, that's not the nourishment that we're talking about, but that's what people think, I believe, that they don't, they don't take the time for them. Do you think that that's, do you find that to be true? Yes. I mean, Nourishment is on every level, not just diet. Right. You know, we we it, there's we have a mind, we have a body. That's the diet part, and we have um, a heart. We need to nourish all of these things in whatever way seems appropriate to us. Um, so so yes, I I think so. And I think they feed off of each other when you. When you live from your heart, when you come from that that space, things are easier and you end up doing more, I don't want to use the word do the right thing, but you end up doing things that are better for you, that resonate with you, that are in alignment with you, regarding everything, food and exercise, because mm-hmm. you have that, it's just within you. You start to blossom almost. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And, and it will be different for everybody, for each sure. person. Yeah, there's no one rule. You have to discover what what nourishes you, what gives you um, whether it's you know beauty or exercise or whatever. It's going to be a whole number of things, but for each person it'll be different. But if if you're glued to your cell phone or in my case 
the computer <laughs> for mm. too long. That is not nourishing. It's no. exhausting. It is. It is. And, in, and all of that leads to your next chapter, A Balancing Act, which was fascinating because everything just led right into the other. I can see how you wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> it's very well written. It's just, it's just, it just flows one right into the other. It was beautiful. But I didn't, but, I didn't write the chapters in that order, I don't think. I just, just pulled stuff out of my one long document and, and put them in a newer document with the chapter title. And then, I don't remember, but at the end, I must have decided what order to put them in. And I don't remember how I did that, honestly. Well, it's a great order because it really makes a whole lot of sense, you know. As I was yes, reading I through never, it, I thought, well... Until you mentioned it, I didn't realize there was a progression. So oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny because I thought, oh, of course this is going to be next. That makes complete sense. I liked it. I wanted to see what, you know, when I'd read the page and I knew I was turning to a new chapter, I'd think, I wonder what's coming up. And I'd read it and I'd think, oh, balancing act. That's, that's critical for people as well because nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of people do not. They don't have balanced lives. I mean, I have clients who come in all the time who say, you know, they're working, 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 and the marriage is falling apart, or they're working on their marriage and the work life is going, you know, to pot. And nobody, in, in, when that happens, they're not thinking, they're not aware, and there's no balance in any part of their life, and they can't seem to get that back easily. Yeah. It's um, it's not easy if you don't pay attention to it, right? right? I mean, it's not easy when you do pay attention to it. But if you if you don't, if you're not aware, if you're not in the present moment, um, at least from time to time, we can't all do it all the time. Then you can see, you know, which way to go. But if you're not here in this moment, you don't really have a chance. And we do get better at it as we practice, which is true of everything. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, just raising that awareness. And sometimes it can be as easy as uh, I'll have clients get a gratitude journal and write in it every night, what are you grateful for for today? So go back and, and see what that is. Well, uh, one of the I read an article, and one of the questions in it was, uh, ask people if you woke up today with only the things that you were grateful for yesterday, what would you have? And I thought, wow, that is a big question. <laughs> that is a very big question, yes. you know? It's uh, a pretty people, amazing question, yeah. Yeah, people don't realize that. So if you bring the awareness forward, I mean, any one of us would wake up with much less than what we have right now. And... When I say this to clients, their eyes literally get big. I mean, they look like, you want me to answer this now? And it's just something to ponder. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And that right there kind of wakes them up. It's a good little wake-up call, don't you think? (laughs) Yes. Very good. I rather liked that one. (laughs) I did. (laughs) But I have to say that I think that your book is very, it's, it's certainly not academic, but it is educational and informative. It's a, it's a fun read. It's a quick read. Um, it's clever. It's it's well balanced, well written. There's nothing. There is nothing left over when you get to the end of the book. Not a crumb. <laughs> do you have you. another book in you? Well, I did do the other book, Caught in the Act, which you mentioned uh, yeah. at the beginning, and that um, that was 
uh, a book that I wrote because, as you also mentioned, I started studying East Asian brush painting when I quit my job, and I had no art background whatsoever. And it occurred to me that um, it would be an interesting exercise to observe what happens when you try to learn a skill, because I, we all don't remember how we learn to walk and talk. So I thought, here is, here's a way to observe the mind, what it does and what it doesn't, what, you know, it, you can't keep it under control a lot of the time. You say you want to paint, and but you don't sit down to do it. And I still have this problem, you know, that I um, can always... I, I, I have this ridiculous notion that I can't paint until I've got all my chores done. Well, of course, uh, chores are never all done. Right. So, you, you you know, you can't go that route. Do it now. <laughs> yes, do it now. Right. <laughs> um, you know, so then it was a paint? very interesting book to write because I tried to be very honest about what my mind was doing, you know, and why it was that I couldn't follow my own advice. Well, I think it's just wonderful that you went into painting without ever having taken any classes or anything like that. Was that part of the fun, the play that you wanted to bring into your life? Um, I didn't uh, I, I didn't know what I was going to be doing exactly. When I quit my job, I, I had two full-time jobs. And being a woman, I was only being paid one salary. Mm. Um, so I quit my job at Knopf, but the Bell Tower, which was the imprint that I started to publish spiritual books, was in another part of Random House. So I negotiated doing that at home. So I was going to keep editing, which I did for nine years. And... I was um, going to write this book for Joel, Nothing Left Over, and I was going to do something else. I had no idea what it was, and it turned out to be the brush painting. But that that's an interesting story of, it, of itself. I'd try and do it in just a few sentences. But in 1972, I, I edited a translation of Lao Tzu's uh, Tao Te Ching, the Taoist classic. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an exquisite book with beautiful photographs and Chinese calligraphy, a large format book. And it has now sold well over a million copies, more than any other of the many uh, translations into English. And there have been three different editions. And once that happened, everybody started giving me brush painting equipment. Some people gave me paper, some brushes, some inkstones. Um, and I kept saying, why are you doing this, friends and family? And they said, we think it's something you would enjoy. And I said, I, I don't have any interest. And I put it all <laughs> on a shelf. And so that was 1972 onward. And then in 2001, I was um, on Houston and McDougal Street in here in Manhattan, where I live. And uh, I passed a little storefront. Um, that said Coho School of Sumier, and I took a flyer and read it, and then I was happened to be passing again a week later, and I saw this elderly Japanese American lady inside, and I went in and I said, I'm sort of interested in this, but um, I don't have any experience, and I'm wondering if before I sign up, could I observe a class? And she said, Yes, you can come tomorrow, and uh, she. 
I asked her to tell me more, and she said she'd started this um, this little um, school uh, 20 years before. She was, at that point, I think, 84. Um, and I thought how stupid I had been <laughs> not to have started 20 years earlier when she began. I had, you know, and I only got her when she was 84, not 64. But I, I started studying with her the next day, um, and it. But it took all those years. It took from 1972 to 2001 before I acknowledged that this this is something that I would do. It was the last other, thing I imagined. Yes, and other people knew it. Yes, they they somehow intuited it. And now um, I have been teaching over seven years, and I just love teaching. That's um, amazing. So I have two classes you know, going at the moment. People, uh, I started out teaching on the Lower East Side, and then they closed for renovations for three years. And so I... I started teaching at home, which is more intimate. I don't have to travel, and um, and I can share what I've. I don't want to waste what I've learned, right? You know, and so I, this way, I can share with anybody who's interested. You know, I show them the basics, and and I teach. This is something my son taught me, which is um, when he was doing substitute teaching after college, he said. Um, that he liked it, and I couldn't understand that. He said, it gives me a chance um, to teach in the way I wish I had been taught and I wasn't. And you should know that I paid for him to go to (laughs) private schools all the way through. And I heard that, and I've never forgotten it, because when I was trying to learn brush painting, I studied with many good artists. But... um, very few were good teachers, and so mm. they wouldn't correct me when I was doing it wrong. So then I would keep doing it wrong, and I got good at that. Oh. So mm. with my students, I'm I'm on them like a hawk, you know, because I want them to do it right and practice doing it right, and they're grateful for that because uh, I explained to them that I don't want them to go through what I I had to unlearn so much. Well, and that's the thing. That makes a good teacher. You don't want to teach somebody something, you know, that, or not teach them in a way that they know how to learn. You want to teach them the way that they do know how to learn and that they'll yes. get it so they'll be better. Yes. That's what a good teacher does. Wow. We are almost out of time, Toinette, but before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and where they can purchase your book, Nothing Left Over? Well, you've already given them um, my website, com. Up there you see over 100 of my paintings and the cards that I make from them and prints and information about the books and a lot of other stuff, many of the books that I've edited. I think you'll find um, it's an interesting and um, beautiful website which somebody made for me in 2007. So that's the best place. I'm also on Facebook, um, at Toinette Lippi Author, Anybody's welcome to go there. Um, that's about that's about it. If they okay, live in New York City, they can sign up. Yeah, <laughs> oh, absolutely, <laughs> sure. Take a class. The website is beautiful. The so week listeners. before last, um, somebody came from Washington State. I'm sorry, from Montana. Oh wow, Washington State to take no, a class. No, no. From she came from Montana. She had been wanting 
to take a class for three years, and she was here for a few days, and afterwards she said this was the highlight of her trip. I bet it was. Wow, that's amazing. She came out here for for a trip? No, she didn't come out here to do it. No, no. She came to visit friends, but Mm -hmm. she said, one day I would like to come and take a class with you, and she came. That speaks loudly as to your ability, so that's very cool. That's really neat. Kudos to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. So, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we are meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So please send the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. Go ahead and get out your calendar and make a note of it now so you remember to tune in next week. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archived list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting, including my Quartz Crystal Singing Bowl, Healing Concerts, and Labyrinth Walks. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. <laughs>